Amen. In your Bible, if you would join me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 12, count it such a joy to be able to have the Word of God in our hands and to come together with those who love the Word of God. And Matthew 12, we're going to read verse 15 down to verse number 21. The Bible says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they would not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man Hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Father, what a joy again to be able to stand for the glorious word of the living God. We pray today that our hearts would be rent by your word, that you would open to us an understanding mind to grasp the depths and the height and the breadth and the width of thy word that we would understand the glory of the one called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We celebrate his birth and we rejoice in his life, but we worship him as our risen Savior. And today we confess Jesus is Lord. The world may blaspheme him, but not here, Father, not here, we worship Christ. All glory be to His name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. I find it a joy that the last day of the year comes on a Sunday morning. What a way to wake up and to give God the first part of the last day of the year and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a profound joy to examine the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. And today, once again, we see Matthew put on display the Lord Jesus Christ in a very unique and wonderful way. There are many titles that Scripture gives to Jesus. His last name is not Christ. That is a title given to Him, the Anointed One. His last name is not Lord. That is a title given to Him as the name Jesus is also a title given to him. He is the Savior, the Anointed One, God, is really what Jesus Christ the Lord refers to. But here in Matthew 12, Scripture assigns a most incredible title to Jesus, our King. He is called God's chosen and beloved servant. And I've entitled this sermon, The Divine Servant, really a paradoxical statement. How can a servant be divine? What king becomes a servant? Christ is impossible. No one would define their coming Savior as a servant. I laugh in my heart when people say, ah, you know, Christianity, and they've made up the Lord Jesus Christ, when skeptics say things like that. Jesus is impossible. You could not invent Him. Men's religions invent Thor's. They invent superhumans. They invent those who reign over everything. 
they invent Allah, who that if you don't live 51% righteous, then he'll cast you into hell. So they have a good angel on one side and a bad angel on the other, recording your deeds throughout your life. You come to Jesus Christ, and here's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all things, who clothes himself with humanity, takes off the crown of glory, and crowns himself with servanthood. It's impossible. You could not invent that. Jesus taught that greatness in the eyes of God was not found through prideful self-righteousness, but rather through the humility of becoming a doulos, becoming a slave of God, a servant. Matthew 20, verse 26, when the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest, Jesus says, it will not be so among you, but whosoever shall be great among you, let him be your minister, or you could translate that also as servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your, the Greek word is doulos, the better translation would be slave. It's it's what the literal word means. And as the Son of Man came not to be served or ministered to, but to minister. Is that incredible? Should that not cause profound awe? (laughs) You mean our God came to serve us and then to give his life a ransom for many? Jesus made himself the example of being a servant. Our king came into the world not to be served, but to serve. For us to serve him, we we are unworthy of that, aren't we? I mean, wasn't John right when he said, I'm not worthy to unloose the shoe latchet from his sandal? You don't have the right to touch him, slave unworthy sinner. You don't have the right to approach Him. You don't have the right to be in His presence. You don't have the ability to look at Him. In spite of all of that reality, He put on humanity incarnation and not only came into our presence, but then He serves us. Who could create that? Reality. That's impossible. He is the ultimate servant. And, and, and one thing that you learn about a servant is a servant always places the one or the ones they serve as more important than themselves. I mean, if you go to a restaurant and your cup is empty and the waitress is over there with their cup empty, you would expect them to fill your cup before their own. Does that make sense? A a, a waiter is designed to be a servant to the needs of the one that they are taking care of. A nurse is a servant of sorts, right? Aren't we thankful for those that serve in that capacity? Law enforcement, they are servants. Uh, They serve the community. Uh, Ministers are servants. Christians are servants. And and, and they are to put the needs of others in front of themselves. And, And in Jesus is the ultimate example of this. I mean, he came into the world, took our sin that we might take his righteousness. He took the judgment that we deserve, that we might receive the forgiveness that we did not deserve. He he took our death that we might have his life. He took the cross that we might have a crown. He took our pain that we might find relief. He took suffering that we might find healing. He took our humanity that we might be partakers of the divine nature. Christ served us, and he still serves us today, even in a greater capacity. He answers prayer. He cares for us. 
He intercedes for us. He leads and guides and watches over us. You're here because he has kept you. You're in the Father's hand, and Jesus has you in his hand as well. Today I want to look at the beloved servant in whom we find the perfect example of the life that God has called us to emulate. We we are called to be mimics of Jesus. There is no better message I could give to you today than to preach about Jesus, our perfect example. Do you want to have a great 2024? Anybody want to like know that your life accomplished something? Like I want to know that I accomplished something? Then, then if we could just grasp the example of the divine servant today. I have eight thoughts that I want to share with you from these verses. And, and if we could just take these and, and apply them to our life, uh, it, would, it would allow us to be all that God would want us to be in 2024. And so first of all, we see Christ as the rejected servant. And I think this will become more and more a reality as the world becomes darker and darker. They're not going to love you more. Uh, They're going to hate you more than they hate Donald Trump. Amen. Christ put on display such incredible love, kindness, and humility, yet by chapter 12 of Matthew, rejection of Christ was mounting. The humble servant was so contrary to the prideful, self-righteous, religious establishment of that day, they could not stand him. The first 14 verses of Matthew is Jesus, the living word, coming in opposition to that religious establishment. And they accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath day regulations. But it's important to know this. Jesus never violated any biblical regulation or never violated the law. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, right? Matthew 5, 19 and 20. Now, what they did was they began to add to what God said in the Old Testament, their man-made religious traditions. And whenever you add something to Scripture, you will ultimately violate Scripture. You can't improve upon perfection. To add to Scripture is to diminish it. Jesus came and fulfilled the law of God perfectly, never violated, but rather He put it on display. You could say the living Word revealed the written Word. Christ heals a man on the Sabbath day in verse 13, which they see as work. And you're not permitted to work on the Sabbath, but Jesus says your priests work on the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. You know, I work every Sunday. Every Sunday. This is work. This is, this is exhausting and joyful at the same time. It's the funnest day of my week. But you work. There are things that people come here and, and, and get things set up. And, and people that are serving in the nursery, they're serving. There's a capacity of work involved in all the things that go on. And do you know God works on the Sabbath? Which is Saturday, but on Sunday, which is our day now, he, he upholds the world by the word of his power. If God stopped working, the universe would fall apart. And so, so he's, and, and then he declares in verse 8 that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm not a servant to the Sabbath, Christ is saying. I am the Lord of it. I created the Sabbath to be a blessing to men, not to be a burden to men. And that's what they had made it to become. But after healing a man in verse 13, Look at their response in verse 14. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. Isn't it incredible when he does a good work of healing a man, they want to kill him for it? Rejection has mounted to the point of them wanting to destroy him. For Christ to be rejected by his own people and religious leaders, you you would naturally assume 
that something was wrong? Like he took a wrong turn somewhere? Uh, Wasn't there a better way Jesus could have come and presented himself? If the religious leaders are rejecting him, I mean, shouldn't Jesus kind of modify the methods a little bit to be more acceptable? If Jesus won over the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders, it would seem that he would easily win over the people. If Jesus would just conform to their traditions, if he would just not do things offensive, stop healing people in Sabbath, just wait for the next day. It wasn't a medical emergency. The guy's hand was withered. Avoid offense. Like, don't do the miracle today. Tell the guy, listen, we're going ha- to wait one day because we don't want to offend a bunch of people. But Jesus doesn't do that. That tells us something about him, doesn't it? If Jesus would not conform to their tradition, what he's showing us is he did not come to conform truth to man, but rather conform man to God's truth. And one thing you learn about Christ and his ministry, he does not change his message or method to conform to the desires of people. Rather, he presents the truth and calls people to that. And it's important to know this. If Christ veiled the truth, he would have robbed the people. Offensive or not, truth must be given. You know what our problem is? We don't act like Jesus. We're more afraid of offending people than speaking truth. It would be good for us as we enter into 2024 loving people enough to tell them the truth. Who have you been holding the truth from this year? Well, you know, maybe there's a... No, there's not. There just isn't. There just isn't. You have to speak truth. You do it in love. You do it in humility. Sometimes you do it with tears coming down your face. Right? You don't do it in pride. You don't do it looking down with self-righteousness. But you do it. We need courage for that, don't we? Christianity needs courage these days. The ungodly have all the courage in the world, don't they? That's why 1% of a country can change the spirit of the whole nation. That's why people like Governor DeWine just vetoed a bill that would have protected young women in sports as well as he got bought off, bought off by doing that. $40,000 given to him. Just found that out. Well, he's a Republican. Matthew 12, verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, notice what he does. He got in a huge argument with them. Is that what he does? You know, Jesus shows us how to respond to people that treat us with injustice. Anybody ever been treated unfairly? You think, anybody here feel like we've ever been treated more unfairly than Jesus? All right, so so he, he really is the perfect example. And here we see the Lord not seeking to be combative, not seeking to cause a fight. Rather, he just withdraws himself. And I would say this. He didn't withdraw himself out of fear of them. He withdrew himself out of, not to protect himself, but really to protect them. I mean, if, if God opened up the earth and swallowed up the sons of Korah, who opposed Moses, what would the father have done to them who would have tried to kill his son prematurely? So, Here the humble servant is not arguing, not debating, not resisting. He just withdraws. And so if you have faced opposition to your faith and have been treated unfairly, how do you respond to that? What what do you do when people treat you wrong for living right? 
And, and, and we're living in a world where righteousness is becoming illegal. It's becoming illegal in some places to hold to truth. There are people whose jobs can be threatened because they don't want to celebrate Pride Month. They, they want to hold to the Word of God. They don't, they're not going to stand up and, and, and start yelling at people that are in that lifestyle of sin, but they're, but they're like, hey, don't tell me to promote what I don't believe in. That's like, that's like having a Christianity month and saying everybody at work has to promote Christ. No, we wouldn't do that to them. Why do they do that to us? So righteousness starts becoming illegal to stand up for what you believe in. One of the best passages on how to respond to this is in Romans 12, verse 18. It says this, If it be possible, as much as life in you live peaceably with all men. Because sometimes it's just really hard to do that. But as much as you're able, as much as you're capable, live peaceably. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself. Rather give place to wrath. It's written, God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay it, saith the Lord. So, so don't seek to avenge yourself. We like the avengers in our culture. We celebrate vengeance, don't we? We like the equalizer. But verse 20 says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him to drink. Is that how you feel when somebody's wronged you? You go see if I can get him something. Yeah. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. And look, look what verse 21, let's all read this together. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. What that means is this. When you face some injustice in life, let God and his word control you instead of some emotional feeling and anger control you against their injustice. Let God be your master and not the flesh. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 23 also give us the clear parameter for that kind of a response. It says, this is thankworthy if a man for a conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Like you're wronged, You've, you've been treated unjustly, verse 20. What glory is it if when you're buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. It's acceptable. God sees it as something honorable. That when you live for Him, then you are unjustly treated. Don't get angry about that. Really, Matthew 5 tells us to rejoice in that, verse 11 and 12. He says in verse 20, For even unto, hereunto were you called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a what? Example, that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth, and that's not true of any of us. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Isn't it hard not to threaten somebody when you've suffered something? You just wait till I... Anybody know what I'm talking about? I grew up with three brothers. You know, oh, I dare you to hit me up. You know, it was never like, I'm going to get even with you. It's, I'm going to hurt you worse. That's why the Bible outlined an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because the response could never, uh, the, the punishment can never surpass the crime. So, so that's still valid today. It's a biblical principle. We've talked about that, I think, two years ago when we were preaching in Matthew 5. Anyway, uh, but he says, uh, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And do you see, do you see it over and over do you see where vengeance is mine, I will repay? Christ committed all the judgment unto the Father. If we knew what sinners would face one day, our vengeful spirits would, would just evaporate. We would say, wow, God's, God's got that. Wow. Actually, I'm going I'm to pray for them. They really need to know Christ. So, 
we, we are giving the example of being a servant who can handle rejection. You, got, you have to learn to face rejection. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about him. God wants you to face rejection. Right? If Christ faced rejection, are we better than him? So we must accept that reality. It's given unto you not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You're called to this. Secondly, he is a servant with great compassion. Verse 15 says, And a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. Matthew presents this in a humble way. When you take this and compare it to Mark 3, verse 7 and 8, he highlights seven different cities that were basically somewhat emptied, and they all followed Jesus. It says, uh, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to see. In Mark 3, 7, it says, And a great multitude from Galilee, from beyond Judea, and from Jerusalem and Edomia. I mean, it just goes on and on. All these places that were just coming out. I like how Dr. John Phillips says it. He says, from that time, the Capernaum clerics had the synagogues, but Jesus had the crowds. In verse 15, it says, and he healed them all. The word healed there is a Greek word, therapuo, where we get the word therapeutic from. It refers in our realm, therapeutics, to the branch of medicine concerned with the treatment of disease, providing therapy and medication for one who's in need. The word has more to do than just healing uh, it's actually translated as both serving and healing. And, and I see that as really being the work of the nurse, of the doctor, of those in, uh, that, that work in our medical field. And aren't we, again, so thankful for you today? If you serve in that capacity, you understand what that means. You're not just there trying to get them to feel better, but you're serving them in that capacity, right? You're, you're serving them to help them to get better. And, and some... And the best nurses and doctors are the ones with that servant heart. And, and, and they most are like that, and we so appreciate that. And here Jesus is the serving healer. He serves the people and heals them. Matthew 4.23, Matthew 8.16, Matthew 9.35, all of these passages, Matthew 10.1, they all talk about how Jesus came and healed them all. He healed them all, every one of them. Now, now, why did Jesus heal? There's a, there's a couple reasons. One, it displayed his divine power. It authenticated his claims as Messiah. If you remember back in Matthew 11, they asked Jesus, John the Baptist sent a couple disciples and said, are you the one or should we look for another? Remember how Jesus responded? In Matthew 11, verse 4, Jesus answered and said, go and show John the things that you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached. He's like, just show him, go tell him what I've done. My works testify of me. Jesus said that also in John 5. Now Jesus' answers was pointing them to his works, which were a fulfillment of the messianic prophecies found in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, which says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame uh, man shall leap as a heart, the tongue of the dumb sing, and it begins to go through that messianic blessing. Now the Lord's miracles also revealed His divine compassion. We serve a compassionate God. He could have done miracles like taking a mountain and putting it over there or elevating Himself uh, physically, like, like being taken up in the sky. He could have done things that didn't have a benefit to people outside of just growing their faith uh, or their been empirical evidence. I mean, they would have just seen it. But, but instead, he does miracle power. He shows this miracle power 
through doing things that showed his divine compassion. I mean, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He looked on the people, and it says in Matthew 9, 36, 14, 14, Matthew 15, 32, when he saw the crowds, it says he was moved with compassion. The word compassion is a word that means you feel it on the inside. Like you, you join the pain of the person you see in need. And, and we see that today, don't we? I mean, there's some of you who have the gift of empathy. I mean, how precious you are that, that you do that. It's such a, such a blessing you are to people uh, because they may begin to share their burden with you and immediately, if their eyes are filled with tears, you're, you, you feel it and you begin to cry with them. You, you join in the pain. You feel it. And, and this is the heart of our God. He comes down and serves us and He has compassion on us. I mean, I would have thought after a few years, he's, he would have been like, man, I regret that I made man on this earth. <laughs> right? I mean, if he was burdened from heaven in, in, in Genesis 6, how burdened would he have been when he came to the earth? I mean, if you didn't know the Gospels, we would have thought after reading Genesis 6, like, boy, if he comes down, he's going to wipe us all out. Not with maybe a flood, but with fire or something. But instead, he is, he is burdened not to destroy men's life, but to save them. What divine... He's not like us. We don't even like Michigan. <laughs> amen. You can even amen that. I mean, in a carnal sense, I can even probably almost... And, and, and what, what is always encouraging is Jesus always took time for people. You know, He didn't always have the time, but He made the time. And you make time for what is valuable to you. And he found himself, they say, come Jesus, just, would, would you heal my daughter, she's sick, or would you heal this person? You know, the, the crowds were like, tell those blind people to shut their mouth and stop yelling. And Jesus says, stop the crowds. You guys need to be silent. You bring them to me. Get the little children away. No, 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 you stop. You bring those children to me. It's incredible, isn't it? And if he was so willing to take time for them then, do you think in his exalted position on the right hand of the Father that he will take time for you this morning? That day, not one person in the massive crowd left without being helped. But as great as that sounds on the front end, it also displayed the physical nature of their pursuit of Christ. And it really becomes somewhat of a sad commentary on the people of that day. They came to seek Christ for what, they could, what He could provide for them physically instead of what He could do spiritually. Listen, there's nothing wrong for asking things that you need physically from the Lord. Maybe encouragement, maybe guidance in your life, maybe financial needs, maybe physical needs. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. The Lord calls you to pray about all things and to pray always. But don't do it at the expense of missing the greater spiritual need that we all have. You see this in Luke 17. Jesus heals 10 lepers. He tells them to go and show themselves to the priest, which was mandated by the law. Right when he says that, nine of them immediately dispense and they head off to the priest, overwhelmed with joy that they have been, been healed. But then something remarkable happens to one of them in Luke 17. It says in verse 15, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. And with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. 
And he was a half Jew, half Gentile. It's a Samaritan. Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed? And I wonder if he's still asking, where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. The statement, thy faith hath made thee whole, does not mean that he healed him. That had already been accomplished. The statement means that you have been made whole spiritually now. The nine were healed physically, but only one was healed spiritually. In other words, the nine called out to Christ for their physical need, but there was one who realized he needed more. And there was more Jesus had to give. Do you remember when they let the man down that was lame? The, they take the roof off the house and they're lowering the man down. I mean, these guys were desperate to get to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, they didn't bring him to Jesus to get his sins forgiven. They brought him to Jesus because he can't walk. He's lame. So why does Jesus heal, like forgive the guy of his sins? Because he later heals the guy just moments later. The reason that he forgives his sins is because he gave the man the best up front. Do you understand there's more that Jesus has to give us than things physically? But do you know how many times in our life we go through a physical trial? We turn to God, we get the physical thing met, and then we don't stay faithful. We become the nine. Friends, he has more to give. Why do you come to Christ? Do you desire the physical more than the spiritual? As we enter into this next year, make sure we have our priorities right. And I believe that you would. That's why you're here today. Thirdly, he was a servant of obscurity. He was a servant of obscurity. Jesus didn't seek publicity or fanfare. Rather, he was one who took off the crown of fame for a crown of obscurity. Jesus is telling them in verse number 16, notice what he says after he heals them all, verse 16, and charged them that they would, should not make him known. He doesn't want them to publicize it. Jesus heals them because he's merciful not to become famous. And to broadcast the miracles created two problems, really. The first is it caused people to seek Jesus for what he could do for them physically. Uh, when, if you think about John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children have been 15 to maybe up to 25,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, they begin to come to him in masses. And, and, and Jesus says to them in Luke 6 or in uh, John 6:27, he said, "Labor not for the meat which perisheth, don't work for that meat, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you." For him hath God the Father sealed. What Jesus is saying is, don't labor to come after me to see what you can get physically. Labor for that which you will receive spiritually. Second, it caused massive crowds to engulf Jesus to the point that it would hinder him. Like he could not do what he wanted to do because the crowds were so pressing upon him. 
In Mark 1, he heals a leper. The leper goes and tells everybody about it after Jesus says, don't go out and publicize it. As a result, Mark 1 verse 45 says this, but he went out and began to publish it much and ablaze and blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in a desert place and they came to him from every quarter. And so it hindered what he wanted to do. And what's interesting to me is you have so-called healers today that they, they have healing crusades. They publicize it, right? They, they want it to be known in their processes that are so often so deceitful. Jesus wanted people to have faith in his word, not to be sensationalized by his miracles. William Barclay rightly says he forbade men to surround him with publicity. He knew only too well how many false messiahs had arisen. He knew only too well how inflamed the people were. He had to teach men that messiahship meant not crushing power, but sacrificial service, not a throne, but a cross. Jesus was a rejected servant, a servant with divine compassion, one who served in obscurity. And and how much we can learn about that, you know, Oftentimes we can become unsettled or disappointed or frustrated if we don't get some kind of recognition for something we do in life, maybe at work, maybe, in, maybe even in a ministry, maybe in some place in your family. That, that's not the Spirit of Christ. The Bible says, let other men boast of you and not your own tongue. If, if, if you're spoken well of, let it come out of other people's mouths and not your own. I would, I would challenge all of us as we go into this next year, see how long we can last without telling somebody some great thing we've done. Amen? We might find that harder than we think. Number four, he was also a servant to Scripture. I love verse 17. It says this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. The beloved servant is the divine servant who was bound to Scripture. The living word could not be separated from the written word. John 10.35, Jesus said, the Scripture cannot be broken. In the garden when Peter sought to defend Jesus because the Lord needed his defending, right? Peter took off the man's ear with his sword. Jesus heals the guy. He's like, oh, I've got to do another miracle over here. Peter's chopping people's ears off. Jesus said to him in Matthew 26, this is a very powerful statement in verse 53. He says, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? (laughs) Verse 54, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Jesus was a servant bound to scripture. Matthew 12 verse 18 through 21 is the longest sustained quotation of the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel. Matthew here in verse 17 puts a divine stamp upon the Lord's person and ministry by declaring that Jesus is not wrong in how he is preaching and ministering, but is in fact fulfilling scripture. When you get to the end of verse 14, and you know why many of the Jews rejected him in his day as well as even to today? Because the religious leaders rejected him. And he's saying, no, 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 you need to understand, he fulfilled Scripture. He is the divine Son, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled. His life was defined by God's Word. All that Jesus did was exactly what the Father desired him to do. 
He did not come seeking his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Matthew 12, verse 18 through 21 is a quotation. It's, it's Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4. Let me just read the text to you. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. It's kind of unique because when you read that compared to verse 17 down to verse, or verse 18 down to verse 21, it's very close, but then it kind of differs at verse 21. Look at verse 21. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. But in the Mesoretic text, which is the Old Testament Hebrew text that the New Testament is translated from, he, so, so we see Matthew, uh, like, like, like this is Isaiah 42.4 is the Mesoretic or the, the Hebrew text. It says, uh, and, and the isle shall wait for his law. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Mesoretic text, it differs and says, upon his name the Gentiles will hope. I compared this with the, the, the Aramaic Targum and other writings. And what's interesting is F.F. F. Bruce writes of Matthew's quotation of Isaiah 42, he says, Matthew gives a very free reproduction of the Hebrew with occasional side glances at the Septuagint. So, so if, you, if you go back and read Isaiah 42, you just need to know that like, he's, he's using both the Mesoretic text as well as the uh, Septuagint, the, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So if our Lord's life was defined by God's Word, and we know this is exact Scripture, Shouldn't that also be the definition of our life, what we aim to be? Uh, does, does God's Word define how you live? When, if, if, if you were to look over 2023, would you say, you know, my life was defined by Scripture? It, 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 I, I lived according to the Word. I did not want to break His Word in my life. How can I live according to God's Word if I don't know His Word? Right? How can I live according to the truth if I don't know the truth? And so, number five, we see a chosen and beloved servant that the Lord was. Matthew 12, verse 18, he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall show judgment unto the Gentiles. Here, Isaiah, Matthew, Matthew is quoting Isaiah, but Isaiah repeatedly refers to Jesus as the servant. Isaiah 49 verse 5 says, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant. Verse 6 of that same chapter says, And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Isaiah 52 13 says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Isaiah 53 11 says, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He is the servant, the promised servant that Isaiah declared him to be. And Matthew is now putting that on display. Jesus, the King of glory, came as the humble servant. When, when the disciples kept arguing over who was going to be the greatest because they got so sucked into their culture of their day, Jesus said, you know, the people that are great among you have the titles, they have the positions, but it's not going to be so among you. Whoever's great among you will be the servant. 
And then he not only teaches them through his word, but also through his works. John 13, right? In the upper room when they're arguing, he takes on the servant's robe and clothes himself and begins to wash their feet and dry them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Ty did a great job this last Wednesday preaching on Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7. This is the, this is the, the, the passage calling us to exemplify the mind of our servant Lord. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. It's the word kenosis in the Greek. Who made himself, he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Does your life reflect that kind of a servant spirit? I would ask the question to myself today, would your spouse think that you are a servant? Would, would your children, would your parents, would your coworkers say, man, they really have a servant's heart? Is the servant greater than his Lord? When you look at Lighthouse, ask this question, does Pastor Josh, and don't answer this, you know, you can write me a letter if you need to, but, uh, but you ask, does the pastor, does, does the deacons, do, my trust, do the trustees, do the leaders, do the teachers of the church, do they reflect a servant spirit? Do they have a servant's heart? Do they, do they reflect that? Do, do the dads in the homes, do the moms, do the children, do the families, do, 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 when you go to work, do you reflect a servant spirit? We need to have a servant's heart, Amen. He says, my servant. And then he says in verse 18, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The word beloved there is agapetos. It's a great word. It means one whom is very much loved. Somebody very dear to you. You have a very special relationship with. The first seven times this word is used, agapetos, in the New Testament, it's used of Jesus in the Gospels. When he was baptized, the father pronounced, this is my Agapetos, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's like, should we build you like a little tent down here? Said, Peter, you might want to hold your breath for a moment. Matthew 17, 5, while he was spake, behold, a cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my Agapetos. This is my beloved, my cherished son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. You know what's very fascinating about that? Is when you get to Ephesians 5, verse 1, listen to what the Bible says. Be ye therefore mimite, or mimics of God. Followers of God, it's translated as. As agapetos. Not only are you children of God, but you are agapetos, children of God. Warren Wiersbe writes, imagine God speaks of us the same way he spoke of Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son. We don't need more self-esteem. We just need to know what God thinks of us. My value isn't derived from my imagination. It's derived from Holy Scripture. If you want your children to have value in if, they, if you want them to have some self-value, bring them to the text. Scripture makes you valuable. Evolution destroys your value. And 
he says, in whom my soul is well pleased. Jesus always did what pleased the Father. John 8, 29, he said, I always do the things that please the Father. You know, man is naturally the opposite. We in our fallen flesh do not please God. Romans 8, 8 says, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 3, 10, none of us are righteous. Romans 3, 12, none of us do good. Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned. We cannot do anything that pleases God. Our good works cannot please God. But that's why we need the righteousness of Christ. When you receive Christ, when you're born again, when you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, God sees you through the lens of Christ. Through Christ, I should say, being applied to your life. He sees Christ's righteousness applied to your life. And when you get saved, you can produce good works that bring glory to God. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says you can't be saved through your works. But then verse 10 says this, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what kind of works? Good works. That's why Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and glorify your Father. Are you in Christ? Without Christ, you cannot please God. Number six, Jesus was a servant empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to touch this because I'll preach on some of this next week as we talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Behold my spirit whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. You need to understand this. Jesus, though God, very God, emptied himself of the free exercise of his certain divine attributes, though he never lost them. He was always God, very God. But he chose to surrender the free exercise of his divine attributes in his incarnation. And then was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the things that he did. He submitted himself to that level. Though he could grab back all of that power and do what he wills, he humbled himself to the point of dependency upon the Spirit. That's why after his baptism, he went up in the power of the Spirit. Over and over, he did his miracles by the power of the Spirit. He, was, he who created all things, John 1, 1 through 3, was placed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1, 18 through 20. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, Acts 10.38. That's what the word Christ means, the anointed one of God or the Messiah. If Christ depended upon the Holy Spirit, how much more do we? Right? When, listen, every day of our life, we should pray, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. It's, baptism of the Spirit happens once at salvation. Filling of the Spirit is a repeated act. I can maybe talk about that briefly next week too. Time evades me. Number seven, the early service. That's why you come, isn't it? I'm trapped. You feel it, don't you? I hope you feel it because I feel it. I don't even have time to take a drink of water. Last two thoughts, really want to share these. Number seven, he is a servant who revealed God's will. Matthew 12, verse 18, the last part of that verse, it says, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. The word judgment means in the Hebrew, the law, the commands, the whole system of truth. It is, as William Barclay says, Jesus showed men how to live in such a way that both God and men receive their proper place in their lives. He showed us how to behave both toward God and toward men. This is the judgment. He showed us divine truth. And how fitting this is in light of the previous passage. He brought us divine truth. He revealed God's judgment. That's why when there was a question posed, will you heal on the Sabbath? That's breaking the law. Jesus says it's good to do good on the Sabbath day. 
I'm showing you the divine standard and you want to kill me for that. That just shows you how satanic the religious establishment was. They were of their father, the devil. There are churches today that are being led by Satan and not by God. Notice the extent, though, of his work. It says he will show judgment unto the Gentiles. He will show his truth, his teaching, his word, God's divine standard to the Gentiles. The word Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos, where we get the word ethnicity from. It can be translated as both nations or Gentiles. Either one is a right translation. Jews often translate it as Gentiles because they refer to the rest of the world as the Gentiles. Where, uh, so so it's, it's, it's really everybody is the idea. And so Christ did not come only to bring truth and salvation to the Jews, but also to the entire world. He's going to show judgment to everyone. And this is a quotation of uh, Romans 15, 12, I should say, quotes Isaiah eleven ten, which talks about that same reality. You know, Israel was to be the light of Christ to the world. They were to show, you know, Jesus, God said to, to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, that you will, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was a, that was a pro- prophetic blessing upon all nations through Christ who would bring salvation. But when the Jews began to think it was just about them, then, then God created a new entity, which was a mystery in the Old Testament because they rejected their Messiah. The light was put out. The natural branch broke off, as Romans 11 says, and then a wild branch was grafted in. That, that's, that's the church where there is no more Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ, right? So, so now the church is the light of the world. And that's where... That's where Christ brought the truth to the world and now does so through the church. That's why the church must proclaim the truth. I mean, that's why when you come here, what else would we turn to? You know, I could open up today with a bunch of funny stories. I could do things to make you laugh. I could do things to make time to be enjoyable. But I have about 50 minutes and I want to saturate you with Scripture. I want you to leave today thinking more of God and His Word and knowing less about anything else. I would rather have you know more of Christ and less of me or anything else I could cause people to laugh about, right? And so let's, let's give one last thought about Christ. I know you thought I could never do eight points in one sermon. So miracles happen even at the end of the year. He is a gentle servant. I, I just am, this, this just puts, makes me want to put my arms around the scriptures and just embrace it with tears. How would the Lord respond to the rejection he faced by so many? How would he handle this? The next statement about the Lord shows the depth of his kindness. In verse 19, it says, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, nor a smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name the Gentiles shall trust. What does it mean that he will not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets? The word strive there is a Greek word that means to wrangle, engaging in strifes or debates and contentions, even brawling. The word cry could also be cry out. It's kregazo. It means to cry out, to shout out, to scream out. It was used of dogs barking or a croaking raven, brawling drunken men, an uproar of a discontented crowd in a theater. This was how it's translated. It was just just a very engaging attitude, very loud, very strong. 
Now, this does not mean Jesus never spoke with a loud voice. Rather, it reflects the gentle, humble spirit in which he ministered. He was not a loud, debating, argumentative, forceful speaker who argued with people, overpowered them with his words and presence. Rather, he was a strong yet humble preacher, direct yet gracious, firm and clear yet gentle and kind. It's really amazing. He, he was one who would withdraw himself instead of get in a heated debate. He didn't use verbal force to control the crowd. He came meek and gentle and lowly. That's why it goes on to say no one heard his voice in the streets. He wasn't the guy that you would hear crying out like a maniac on the corner of a street. Jesus understood what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9.17, that the words of the wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. You know, we would do well to learn from this. Who do you raise your voice at and why do you raise your voice at them? How effective is it to get into arguments and debates? How far did that progress us this year, if we ever did that? Do we feel emotional, carnal attitudes and language is more effective to get our spouse or our children to respond the way that we think they should more than a Christ-like attitude and spirit? Do we feel the example of the world and the desire of the flesh is more effective than the example of the Lord and the work of the Spirit? Where in your life this year can you better follow the Lord's example of this kind of an attitude? William Barclay writes, In Jesus there is the quiet, strong serenity of one who seeks to conquer by love, not by strife of words. We would all do well to take that to heart. Amen. In Matthew 12, 20, it says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax he shall not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. This is an incredible testimony of him. What is a bruised reed? Well, a reed was used in those days by shepherds. They would sometimes break off a reed, turn it into a little flute, and they would play that flute until it became moist or cracked, and then it would be broken, and they would just break it and cast it away because they had no more use for it. That's what it means to be a bruised reed. A smoking flax could be translated as a, like a lamp wick that has burned down to where it only was smoldering. Since it was useless, you would just throw it away. It's what we do. The bruised and cracked and broken reed and the smoking, smoldering wick represent the lives of people who are broken, whose lives no longer make music and no longer give light, and so society would cast them away as no longer valuable. And you know, it's the nature of people to destroy things. I mean, just take a group of teenage boys out on a hike. They will break down every tree that they think they can push over. A group of bugs walking across the path, they will step on every single one of them. You know, we, we're destructive by nature. And, and, and what man looks to throw away and destroy, God is not like man. God is not destructive. God is a restoring God. Those broken outcasts, the battered lives, those who no longer make music or give light, he seeks to restore and blow on their life until their fire is rekindled. God is a healer and a restorer, not just of the physical, but of the spiritual. The man with the withered hand, cast off by the legalist, was restored by Christ. The, the prodigal son, cast off by the older brother who represented the Jewish leaders, was restored by the loving father. The Samaritan woman at the well, broken through five relationships, cast off by society, was restored by the loving Jesus. The woman caught in adultery who the crowd said, cast stones at her and cast her out. Jesus restored her through forgiveness. The crazy demoniac who was cast out of the city living in tombs was restored by Christ. You're here today because perhaps society cast you out, but Christ is willing to restore you. 
a broken reed and a smoking flax, he doesn't disregard. He brings it back and he restores it. What in your life today do you need restored? What in your life today you say, God, I need to, I'm broken in this area of my life. I need you to heal me. I need you to work in me. The greater healing is not physical, it's spiritual, it's inward. And I think this, if Christ is so gracious to us, isn't it reasonable that we would show the same heart, compassion, and gentleness gentleness to others? Let us not cast other people off. This morning we see the king who became the chief of servants to make sinners into sons of God. I close by asking you, what will you do with that truth? What will you do with that divine reality? The divine servant. What a year 2024 will be. What a year would it, it will be if we mimic Christ. And it closes out in verse 21 saying by declaring that in Him shall the Gentiles trust. Have you trusted in Christ? All of this is declared that you might place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your faith in Him, that you would surrender your life to follow His examples. The Bible says, put off the old man, be renewed in our mind, and to put on the new man, which after God has created in righteousness and true holiness, that we might live like Him. You want to be a great dad this year? Be like Jesus. You want to be a great mother? Be like Jesus. You want to be a great husband or wife? Live like Christ. Let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.